0: Welcome to the Fit for the Future podcast, which helps you navigate this fast-changing world by bringing you ideas, information, interviews, and insights for being fit for the future. Here's your host, Gihan Pereira. Hello, this is Gihan Pereira. I want to talk about something today that's top of mind for many businesses and many organizations, and it's the idea of being customer-centric. So it comes from the basic idea of thinking about the customer first. So, you know, we've heard those things, like the customer's always right. For decades, we've been talking about customer satisfaction. More recently, we've been talking about customer experience management. And the flavour of the month now is customer centricity. How do we reorganise our business so that we focus on the customer? And by doing that, gain a gain a competitive advantage over everybody else in the industry. So there's a lot of talk about that, but I think most of it is missing a really important point. And unless you get this point right, then it's very likely that you're going to be disrupted by somebody else, either within your industry or more likely from outside your industry. So let me tell you what I mean by that. And today I want to talk about six things that you can do to be more future proof by focusing on the customer. And it's very different from what most experts and analysts are talking about, uh, what it means to be customer centric. So the idea of customer centricity is not new. It simply means uh, turn your business around. So it starts its focus from the outside, from the customer, rather than being so internally focused. But... There's, as I said, there's a major flaw in most people looking at customer centricity. Let me take an example. I'm going to pick the American Marketing Association, uh, not because I've got anything against them, but because I think that uh, what they're saying about customer centricity reflects what most people are saying. And, um, and they're, what they're saying are really good things, but there's something missing from them. So on their website, ama.org, you can read an article which talks about the seven pillars of customer centricity. So let me me quickly tell you what they are because they're actually very good things for you to do. So number one, experience. Make the customer experience easy, enjoyable and convenient. Number two, loyalty. Reward and recognize customers in in a consistent way that's relevant to how they want to be rewarded. Number three, communications. Personalize the message to customers based upon what they're buying in a way that they like. Number four, assortment. Have the right products and a strong variety to meet the customer needs. Number five, promotions. Leverage promotions on the items that are most appealing and often purchased by your customers. Number six, price provide prices that are perceived to be in line with what the customer is looking for, and number seven, feedback, hear and recognize customer concerns. So those are the seven pillars of customer centricity, according to the American Marketing Association. Now, as I said, these are all really good things, and most businesses should be doing those things. And if you're not, that's a really good starting point, but I don't think it's enough. And if you want to be really fit for the future and you want to be thinking ahead so that you can be future proof, then that alone is not enough because you can do all of those things and you'll still be disrupted by somebody else. And let me tell you why. So let's look at the two companies, Google and Apple. So Google and Apple are two of the biggest companies on the planet, and they both obsess about their customers. But they have two very different attitudes towards customers. And um, as an example, to show you how the attitudes differ, let's look at the product where they compete head-to-head, the smartphone. So Apple's approach to their customers is this. We're really smart. We know what's best for you. And it's true that they create beautiful iPhones. They obsess With the engineering, and they have a real focus on the customer experience, and they maintain tight control over every part of the customer's experience. In fact, in the original iPhone, Steve Jobs didn't even want to include an App Store because it wouldn't allow Apple to control everything on the device. Now, Google's approach is different, so they also care about their customers, but their attitude is you're really smart you know what's best for you. So unlike Apple, they give away control of their smartphones to the device manufacturers, to the app developers and even users. And what happens is that sometimes when you're using a Google Android phone, it's a little bit more clunky than an iPhone. The, the hardware and the software doesn't necessarily integrate together as well. Some of the apps aren't consistent with each other. And sometimes it might crash a little bit more than an iPhone. Now, both the approaches, Apple and Google, can work. But I think the future belongs to businesses who use google's approach and in fact google is already winning the smartphone race it's already got more than 80 percent of the world's smartphone market and apple comes a distant second at 15 percent and a few other bits here and there so the difference between them is that the way that they look at their customers so google wants to enroll their customers in how they build develop and use their products Apple wants to keep control to themselves and then release the best product. And I reckon if you're putting a bet on the future, I think you should go with the Google approach. So don't make this an argument about whether iPhones are better than Android phones. Just think about those two philosophies. So when you hear about the word customer-centric, have a look at what the person is actually saying. And generally they're saying we want to find out more about our customers so that we can provide better products and services to them and by doing that we will be better than our competition and i don't think that's good enough anymore that used to work in the past but really what you want to do is more the google philosophy is saying you our customers are really smart You know what you want, so how can we help you achieve what you want? So let me give you one example of this. So you may have heard uh, the idea of mapping your customer's journey. It's one of the most common ideas trotted out by customer experience experts, and they talk about it as a way of becoming more customer-centric. So what happens with mapping the customer's journey, and I think it's a good idea, is to identify every interaction your customer has with you and your business, and then look for ways to enhance the experience that they have at each of these touch points. It's a good idea, but it only identifies one customer journey, the one that your current customers take, and that's probably based on the way you used to operate in the past. And while you're diligently mapping your customer journey based on an out-of-date map, your competitors and smart startup companies are disrupting the industry by aligning themselves with what customers do now. So as a really obvious example, if your business had always attracted new customers with a large ad in the yellow pages, the printed yellow pages, that probably isn't going to be as successful for you now because customers no longer go along that journey. And as a less obvious example, suppose you're a financial planner and you've come across a bright idea that you're going to invite your clients who are close to retirement to also introduce their children and grandchildren to your firm so that you get a whole new generation of clients. Now, that's a really good idea, but you might be surprised to find that these younger generations don't like the way that you do business. They won't tolerate lengthy meetings, endless forms and um, returns that don't materialize until decades in the future. They want to use an app uh, to do their financial planning and advice and their investment. And those sort of apps exist. So, how do you be customer centric in a way that's future proof? Well, the best way to be customer centric is to bring your customers inside your business and involve them earlier in your internal processes. This is odd because in the past there was a clear wall between you and your customers. So you and your business and your team were inside the wall and your customers were outside. And you engage with your customers only in a narrow band of interactions, such as marketing campaigns, sales meetings, feedback surveys, customer support, and of course, the sales transaction itself. But that isn't enough anymore. In our more social, highly connected, information-rich world, the most successful organizations break down this wall and let customers in. And that's the risk. And that's a danger with just mapping your current customer's journey because what you're looking at is simply the touch points that you've always had in the past and you're trying to enhance the experience. That's pretty good. But what if your customer journey is very different now? So to be future-proof bring your customers inside. In fact, the earlier you involve your customers in your processes, the better. It's like slow cooking, where you add salt as early as possible so that it gets absorbed into the other ingredients and adds flavor to everything, um, rather than adding it right at the end. So like that, you'll get the greatest benefit when you involve your customers sooner rather than later. So let me explain what that means, and then we'll go into this in a bit more detail. So the typical product or service development cycle has six phases, and they go like this. First, you choose what products and services you're going to offer to your customers. Then you design and build them. Then you promote them. So when you're ready, you start marketing them and then selling them to your customers. And then you deliver. So whatever form that takes to be able to deliver that service or to sell that product to the customer. Then you offer support because customers may have questions and then you ask your customers for feedback so here's the thing the earlier in the process you involve them the better so let's so let's look at those six phases in reverse order and let me explain briefly what i mean by involving your customers in the process so the last stage is feedback and that's pretty obvious you ask your customers for feedback after you deliver the product or service so that's what you do with standard customer feedback But the other five may not be what you would generally do. So support. So instead of just providing support yourself to customers, you help your customers help each other. Uh, Promotion. Instead of you doing all the marketing and sales, you ask your customers to promote and sell for you. What about delivery? Instead of doing all the work in delivering your product or service, you ask your customers to help provide the product or service. Come back to design. Instead of you being involved in the design because you've got the expertise, you involve your customer's experience in designing your product or service. And then right back to choice. So instead of you choosing what products and services are best for your customers, you ask your customers to do that. Now, if you've traditionally kept your customers at arm's length, it might seem strange now to try involving them kind of as partners in your business, but be willing to give this a go because you can generate some ideas in each of these six areas, choose a few of them, and then ask your best customers to take part, and you might be surprised at the results. Okay, so that's the overview. Let's now look at each one of these six areas and we're going to go from the last to the first and we'll look at them in a little bit more detail. So the last stage is feedback. So you ask for feedback Because your customers are already expert users for your business. So ask for their opinion and act on it. Let me tell you a story. As a young software developer working for a small software company in Perth in the 1990s, I was involved in building some of the infrastructure of the early internet. Now, I didn't really have a very big part in it, but I had a small part in it because our company was subcontracted to a British company called STC Submarine Systems, which laid telecommunication cables along the seabed of the world's oceans and that was carrying the early internet traffic Now, our job was to build the software systems that would sit at each end of an optical fibre cable system, and it would be monitoring the health of the lasers and the other equipment along the cable, just to make sure that it was working all the time. Now, we would work for years developing the software in our office in Perth, and then carefully integrate it with our client software in the UK, until we thought it was working well enough to connect to a live cable. And then we'd travel overseas to the telecommunications stations, which were in remote locations around the world, where the undersea cable would come ashore, and there we'd install and test our software in the real world. And I remember vividly when, as part of our software installation team in Hong Kong, I would watch nervously every morning as our end customer pored over the automatically generated reports that we created for them checking for any errors in the operation of the cable system and sometimes the reports weren't good enough so they'd ask for more information in the report and then we'd work frantically throughout the day and overnight to add this new feature to the software. That's how software development used to work in the 1990s. Now that's very different from the way it works now. In those days it took years, literally years, before the customer had the chance to see our product and provide feedback. Now think about some of the most common apps that you use. Software app developers publish an early release of their app one day they get customer feedback instantly and they release another version almost immediately so here's the point your customers are already expert users in your business so ask for their feedback they don't expect you to be perfect but they expect the opportunity to provide feedback and they want you to fix problems fast unfortunately most businesses ask for feedback too late when there's no benefit to the customer to give the feedback. And that's why most people ignore those email requests for online reviews. Mm You know the sort of things I mean? You get requests after visiting a restaurant to rate and review the restaurant or a hotel or online shopping and other such services. These reviews only help the service provider, not the customer. So most people just delete the email or the request for the review. Or if they've had a bad experience, they make a negative review to get revenge on the establishment. But either way, it doesn't really help the customer to provide that feedback. So... Ask for your customer feedback as early as possible at a point where you can actually change their experience and then make sure you act on it. In fact, you follow these four stages of getting feedback. Number one is to ask early. So, ask as early as possible in the customer journey. Number two is to listen openly, so you listen without judgment and record all the feedback. And then number three is to assess and judge it fairly, because not all feedback is useful, not all feedback is practical, but don't discard it just because you don't like it or because it's not easy to address. And number four, of course, is to act swiftly. So act on the feedback and ideally in a way that helps the original customer who gave the feedback, not just customers in the future. Now, asking for feedback earlier doesn't mean, doesn't give you the license to release a sloppy product or service because you just have the excuse that you're just doing it for customer feedback. It's still your responsibility to deliver quality, but you don't have to get it perfect before you ask for feedback. As a rule of thumb, follow this guideline. 80% is near enough to be good enough. Now, you can apply that in different ways. For example, you could release a beta version when you think it's 80% ready, or you could release it to a carefully chosen list of 20% of your top customers first before you release it to everybody else. Or you could hold back the final 20% as bells and whistles, uh, features and enhancements that you can add later. But whatever you do, ask for feedback. Okay, so that's the first, or if you like, the last stage in that development cycle. So let's come back one stage and look at support. And the key point here is that they'll find a way. Customers know how to help other customers get stuff done. So let me tell you another story. In 2006, a Malaysian IKEA fan who goes by the pseudonym Jules Yap started the website IKEAHackers.net, where she just posted examples and photos of IKEA customers who assembled their IKEA furniture in creative and innovative ways. And she just became a central place for this. And before long, her website became the leading community for these IKEA fans who were looking for interesting ideas to enhance their IKEA furniture experience. Now, from IKEA's viewpoint, this was a goldmine. It's a huge benefit to have a passionate blogger like Jules working at no cost to IKEA, building a community of IKEA fans who share their ideas and experiences and of course along the way happen to buy more ikea products most businesses would love to have that kind of fan community and many try to set it up they pay staff to build such a community and rarely do they have that much success and ikea should have been thrilled by the website but they weren't so somewhat strangely bizarrely Eight years later, after she launched the site, IKEA turned its lawyers on her, and they demanded that she shut it down for trademark infringement. Now, strictly speaking, they might have been in the right, because she was using the IKEA trademark with her permission, but it wasn't really harming IKEA in any way. In fact, it was just the opposite. So rather than embracing the efforts of a passionate fan, they threatened and intimidated her. Now, she and her fans didn't want to go down without a fight, and they took to Twitter, email, any other form of feedback to ask IKEA to retract their action. And this story has a happy ending, because to their credit, somebody at IKEA saw the light and backed down, and their their apology reflected, you know, even in retrospect, the mindset they should have had right from the start. So to quote what they said, they said this, We want to clarify that we deeply regret the situation at hand with IKEA hackers. It has, of course, never been our ambition to stop their webpage. On the contrary, we very much appreciate the interest in our products and the fact there are people around the world that love our products as much as we do. We are now evaluating the situation with the intention to try and find a solution that's good for all involved. And it did turn out to be okay. And at the time of the legal dispute, Jules said, I was just a crazy fan. In retrospect, a naive one too. And fortunately for Ikea, they recognize the value of having crazy fans on their site. So the point is that you might think you know everything about your product or service because you live it, you breathe it, and you and your team developed it with blood, sweat and tears. And all of that might be true, but it doesn't mean that you know everything. As much as you are experts in building it, your customers are experts in using it. Customers know how to help other customers get stuff done. And because you're always looking at your product from an internal view, you create rules about how to solve a problem. Or, if you're being a bit more flexible, options on different ways to solve a problem. But customers come at it with a fresh outlook and an external perspective. And sometimes they find answers that you hadn't considered and In that case, you add them to your support database, but the real gold comes when customers find solutions in innovative ways, which we call hacks. They break the rules of how you're supposed to use your product or service, and you didn't imagine that they could have done it that way. Sometimes you wouldn't even allow or sanction it, but... Those hacks work. And don't discourage them. Instead, encourage, endorse, and embrace them and find a way to bring these fans together to help each other. They'll become like ants at a picnic. They lay a trail for other ants. They'll share their ideas with other customers and that's a good thing for you. So what can you do to support customers support each other? So here are three questions you should be asking. Are you currently doing anything that restricts or discourages customers from sharing ideas with each other? Stop doing that. Secondly, can you find customers who are already building a fan base for you? And what can you do to now support or encourage them? And then finally, if you can't find those fans already out there, what can you do to build a space, um, often an online space, for customers to share ideas with each other? So that's the idea of support. Customers know how to help other customers get stuff done. So help them support each other. The third area is delivery, delivering the products and services. And the point is this, do only what you must do. Anything that you don't absolutely have to do yourself, consider outsourcing it to your customers. Let me tell you about Monmouth, which is a small town of about 10,000 people in Wales, and they proudly call themselves the world's first Wikipedia town. And that's because all around the town, at places of interest, such as monuments, natural features and historical buildings, tourists can find ceramic plaques bearing QR codes. So they snap a picture of the QR code on their phone, and it takes them to Monmouth's own Wikipedia site called Monmouthpedia, where they can find out more about their place of interest. So in this way... Monmouth has turned itself into like a huge art gallery, with all its place of interest being the exhibits, and the Wikipedia site is like the catalogue, a detailed catalogue of the collection. The most interesting aspect of this service, as far as we're concerned when we're talking about customer centricity, is not the service itself, but the people who managed it. So the idea was originally proposed by a local resident, John Cummings, and then embraced by the Monmouthshire County Council, which supported and funded the site. But the individual Wikipedia pages are created and managed by the local residents themselves. So in this way, the local council has persuaded their customers, the local residents, to actually deliver the service that the council is providing. So here's the point. If there's anything in your customer journey that you don't have to do yourself, consider outsourcing it to your customers. Now, of course, there's some work that customers can't do because it needs knowledge, expertise, training and really better judgment than customers can exercise. For example, you don't expect passengers to fly the plane and you want qualified pharmacists to fill the patient prescriptions, but that doesn't mean you have to do everything yourself. As customers, we pump our own petrol, we take money out of an ATM, we use the self-service kiosk as the supermarket and we press our own buttons in the lift. Now, these are all tasks that a business used to do for us, but now we do it ourselves. Think about your work as falling into three categories. The must-do, the choose-to-do and customers could do. So the must do are the things that only you or your team or your contractors, your suppliers or partners can do. So of course, you have to do them. Then the choose to do are the things that other people could do, including your customers, but you still choose to do them. And finally, the customers could do are the things that customers could do if you gave them the option. Now, it might seem counterintuitive to ask customers to do the work. After all, they are paying you not the other way around, but customers like to be involved as long as you give them a genuine opportunity to contribute. In fact, the research supports this. Behavioral economist Dan Ariely calls this the IKEA effect. There's IKEA again. So, we love a wobbly IKEA bookcase because we were involved in building it. And uh, Ariely did some really interesting experiments around this. So, he brought people into his lab and got them to do an experiment. But he split the people into two groups. So half of the group were given the raw materials for the experiment and they were asked to construct the equipment that they needed for the experiment. The other half were given the the equipment already made up. And at the end, when he asked for it back, the the group that had built their own equipment, they didn't want to give it back to him. Uh, They didn't want to break it up at the end of the experiment. When he offered to pay, they wanted more money for that because they'd been involved in it. So customers actually do want to be involved. So what can you do? So start by listing all the things that you do to deliver your product or service. And then ask yourself, what are the things that you absolutely must do? And be sure about that, because there may be things that you think you must do, but maybe you could loosen the rules a bit and customers could do them. But there'll be some that you must do. Fair enough. Those are off limits. And for everything else, what are the things that you could invite customers to do? And for each of them, look at the the pain and the pleasure. So what added benefit does it give customers to do that? Because then they'll want to do it because it gives them a pleasure. Or what reduced drawback? does it give them? In other words, how does it reduce their pain? And if you look at those things, you might be surprised, pleasantly surprised, to find that there are many things that you could ask your customers to do for you. So again, the point is this, do only what you must do. Anything that you don't absolutely have to do yourself, consider outsourcing it to your customers. Okay, so we can do a little bit better than that. So we've covered so far, feedback, support, and delivering your products and services. What about promoting? What about the sales and marketing? Well, here's a point, don't ask for referrals. Instead, invite your customers to ask their friends to share the same experience. Let me give you an example from the highly competitive world of financial advice and financial planning. So financial planning businesses have to work harder than ever before to attract new clients, especially here in Australia, because there have been some recent changes to the industry where advisors must charge a fee for their service rather than earning commissions from products that they recommend to their clients. And they have to demonstrate ongoing value to their clients for those fees. Now, one business has seen this as an opportunity rather than a nuisance, and they combine those two ideas in a way that adds value to existing clients, but but also helps them attract new clients. What they do is every quarter they host a webinar, which they call a market update webinar for their clients. They report on the state of the market, they describe the impact of recent events, whatever they are, such as an election or a change to some legislation, and then they highlight some future trends. Now their webinar software allows them to invite pretty much an unlimited number of attendees. So what most businesses would do is it open it up to everybody and they try and promote it far and wide so they get as many people as possible attending the webinar. So in other words they use it as a public marketing channel. But this firm does something different. They want to offer this as an exclusive value added benefit to their clients. So they restrict the webinar to clients only. But They do still use it as a marketing opportunity because every client is given two free tickets to invite somebody from their network, their family, friends, work colleagues, anybody else they wish. And by doing this, each webinar becomes a win-win-win opportunity. So the clients themselves get exclusive access to valuable information from their financial advisor and get to extend this to two friends. The friends who get invited also get access to this valuable information with no obligation, no pressure to buy anything or to switch financial advisors. And of course, the business adds value to their clients and gets a chance to demonstrate their value to a new, warm, friendly audience. So here's the point. Don't ask for referrals Try to share experiences. The idea of asking your customers for referrals is not new. And of course, somebody referred to you is a warm prospect for your business and usually easier to convert than most other prospects. But most businesses don't ask for referrals consistently. Sometimes they don't have a consistent system for it. But more often, it's because the process seems a bit icky. The salesperson feels awkward asking for a referral and even the happiest customers are pretty protective of their friends because they just don't want their friends to be sold to even by somebody from whom they've had a a good experience. So think of the three ways that you attract new customers without, through and with. So without is you attract a new customer without the help of an existing customer. So you reach out to them independently of any relationship that they might have with existing customers. Then through is you get new customers through your existing customers. And that's where you ask your existing customers for referrals. But with is the best option you ask your existing customers to invite other people to share the same experience as they get themselves. And this third method is more powerful than a simple referral because a prospect genuinely shares the same experience in a low pressure, no obligation way. Now, this hasn't been as easy in the past because providing an experience comes at a cost. There's a marginal cost for each extra person. But now, in our digital, social, connected world, it's easier than ever to provide high quality experience at a low or even zero marginal cost. So here are three thinking points for you to bring in more new customers this way. Three questions that you should ask: what are you already doing for customers that you could easily extend to prospective customers? What more could you do that adds extra value for customers and then with the intention of also extending it to prospective customers? And then how how can you enroll your customers in inviting these prospects to share these experiences? So the point again is don't ask for referrals. Instead, invite customers to ask their friends to share the same experience. Let's look at design. So use your customer experience in your design. Combine your expertise with your customer's experience to design the best product. Let me tell you how Auckland City Council does this. So in Auckland, New Zealand, there's been some discussion about building a light rail system in the city. And like many topics that are open for public discussion, anybody who's interested, which are typically residents, can have their say in online forums. And of course they do. So here's a a real example. From building face to building face, all Dominion Road stations would have 21 metres of width to play with. We can fit a central island platform if we want to. Here's another one. I would envisage the parking lane stopping at a station or stop and the drive lane moving over to it so the platform could be where the drive lane is. Now, great. It's really great that those customers, the local residents, are giving feedback. But the residents didn't just make their comment in writing. What they can do is demonstrate their ideas in pictures. They use the service called StreetMix.net which Auckland City Council uses every time they want feedback from their residents. Uh, it's a free service which allows local councils to publish a proposed transport layout, and they do this online, and then anybody can then adjust directly from their web browser, and uh, they can adjust it to contribute their suggestions. And then, in this case, when Auckland Transport starts work designing that light rail layout, they can take all of these ideas into account. So here's a point. Your best customers already have years of experience using your products and services. So why wouldn't you draw on that experience when designing them? And if you can provide easy to use tools for them to provide design input, then your customers will gladly help you out. Tools like this are known as mass customization toolkits or MC toolkits. And sometimes you might be able to find them available off the shelf for you to buy to license or to use free and at other times you may need to build them yourself so that you can bring customers into the design process. Now of course your customers aren't design experts so some of the ideas they suggest just might not work but that doesn't mean you shouldn't ask them at all. Great design is a combination of experience and expertise and in the past you relied on your internal resources for both but now you can call on your customers for their experience and then add your expertise to make it happen. Now, of course, it's not enough to just ask your customers for their ideas. You also need to use them. And that might mean changes to your systems, processes, even your team culture. So it's definitely not as simple as just clicking your fingers today and magically making this happen overnight. But if you want to be truly customer-centric, make the decision now to involve your customers and get their experience so that you can then use that in your design. The point again is that your customers know a lot because of their experience. So combine your expertise with their experience and you'll design the best products and services. Okay, so we're almost at the end. Remember the six stages, we've talked about five of them, going backwards, feedback at the end, then support, customers supporting each other. We've talked about customers being involved in delivering the product and service. We've talked about customers involved in promoting and selling it. And now we've talked about customers involved in designing it as well. The last one is right back at the start, is choosing. Ask customers what they want and they will help you choose which are the best products and services. So let me tell you about the technology company Lifebeam. It was founded in 2011 by two former Air Force pilots, and they first built products to monitor heart rate and blood flow of pilots and astronauts to help people understand more about the physical challenges of flying. Now, the technology was later used by companies like Samsung and Under Armour in their wearable products, and so Lifebeam knew that there were consumer applications as well, not just technical applications for pilots and the military. But... When they want to launch their own consumer product, which was an artificial intelligence personal trainer, which in reality was just a pair of smart headphones for tracking runners, they weren't sure whether customers would like it. So before investing millions of dollars in research and development of a product that might only generate a little bit of demand, they decided to ask their customers directly, whether they wanted it. And they did this using the popular crowdfunding site, Kickstarter. And they were looking for $100,000, US dollars, of seed money to fund the initial development. And the campaign was a huge success. It quickly reached that goal of $100,000 and then exceeded it many times over. Eventually, when the campaign ended, they had generated $1.7 million. And that made it the highest funded campaign to date for a wearable device. But more important than just the money, the team at Lifebeam now knew that they had a hit on their hands and then they went into full-blown production. They knew that customers had voted for their product long before they had started developing it, let alone marketing it. Now, crowdfunding sites like Kickstarter and Indiegogo play an important role in providing this sort of alternative funding for startup companies and entrepreneurs who don't want to go down the traditional funding path with venture capitalists and floats and so on. And there's no doubt that they've helped many small businesses launch big products, but they also provide another valuable service. They let customers choose which products and services they want. And in the world of crowdfunding, only a few products succeed. Most products fail. In other words, they don't reach their funding goal. Now, of course, those failures are devastating for their founders, but it's better to fail now rather than pumping time, money, and energy into a product that fails later. So here's the point. You might think you know the best product or service for your customers, but do you really know Wouldn't it be nice to know before you invest time and money in developing these products? And you don't have to do this with a crowdfunding site, but do ask customers what they want. Give them options, and they'll help you choose the best products and services. Now, it doesn't mean that you give your customers carte blanche in every decision. In fact, there are two things broadly that you usually don't delegate to your customers, the why and the how. So the why is about your underlying mission, your purpose and your values, and that's up to you. You choose that, you and your team decide that, and all your products and services must align with those principles. And then the how. So after you choose a product or service, you don't expect your customers to have the expertise to create it and build it and develop it. That's your expertise. Think of this like passengers on a bus. They choose their seats and they choose their stop, but they don't choose the route, which is the why, and they don't control the steering wheel, which is the how. But even if you leave those two things aside, you still have a lot of scope to ask your customers about the what. In other words, what products or services will suit them best? Or if you apply this to existing products or services, ask them what features they would like next. So, to invite your customers to help you choose the best products and services, start with these three questions. Number one, what new products and services are you considering? Have you asked your customers to help you choose, prioritize or evaluate them? Number two, does it make sense to offer this only to selected customers? So you may only want to offer it to a small subset of customers first, and you may choose them like your best customers, because they're the ones who are your most loyal advocates, they're the ones who might give you the best feedback, before you offer it to everybody else. And then number three, can you extend this beyond even existing customers to the wider market? So crowdfunding sites like Kickstarter and Indiegogo do this. So companies who launch on those sites, they don't only make it available to the existing customers, they make it available to everybody. That may or may not be right for you, but it's a good question to ask. But the point is this. Again, ask your customers what they want, and they will help you choose the best products and services. So we've looked at those six things. Let let me summarize them again for you, because we've covered a lot along this journey. So the six phases of a typical product and service development cycle are this. Number one, you choose what products and services you offer. Two, you design them and build them. Three, you promote, which is the marketing and sales. Four, you deliver. Five, you offer support. And six, you ask for feedback. So again, remember the principle is that the earlier in the process you involve them, the better. So what we did in summary was starting from feedback, we ask your customers for feedback after you deliver the product or service. With support, you help your customers support and help each other. With promotion, you ask your customers to promote and sell for you. With delivery, you ask your customers to do some of the work in delivering the product or service. With design, you involve your customers' experience in designing your product And with choice, you ask your customers to choose the products and services that you offer. As I said at the start, if this is new to you, it might seem a little bit strange because you're now asking your customers to act like partners in your business. But this is the right way and the best way to be customer centric. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that the customer journey that's always worked for you in the past is going to be the way that customers engage with you in the future. It might, but only for some customers, and it leaves you vulnerable to disruption from smart companies who actually look at what customers are doing now. So if you really want to future-proof your business, then be customer-centric, but do it by involving your customers as early as possible in your business process. That's the best way to be customer-centric and fit for the future. If you want to know what's on the horizon for being fit for the future, then download my app, Fit for the Future, on your iPhone or Android phone. And I created this app because many people come up to me after my conference keynote presentations or my workshop or my mentoring, and they ask how I do my own research, what blogs I read, what podcasts I listen to, what videos I watch, and they want to follow me, of course, and they want some recommendations so they can become fit for the future as well. So I created this app. I update it regularly with news, articles, videos, uh, other resources to to help you become fit for the future. It's free and is ad free. So head over to the iTunes store or Google Play and download it now. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and found something valuable for your personal and your professional life. And if you did get some value from it, I would love it if you could do me a favor, give me a review and a rating in your favorite podcast app. And that, that helps to promote it to other people as well. And if you want me to share ideas like this live at your next conference, then check out my speaking topics at gihanspeaks.com. And if you want to engage with me in other ways, go to gihanparera.com, G-I-H-A-N, perer where you can find my blog newsletter podcast and webinars and they're all free and they're all designed to help you leverage the potential of your organization your team and of course yourself this is gihan Pereira. bye for now for show notes past episodes and more visit gihanperera.com and remember great minds don't think alike